morning. That's really exciting. It's exciting to think that we're going to get to come back together. We're actually going to get to see each other and interact in the future as we get together at Braider Way and at other sites. Now, that's really exciting for me because I'm the new Black Hawk downtown pastor. My name is Adam Penning. And uh, because I started this role and we moved to Madison in the middle of COVID, I really, really just haven't had a chance to get to know each other. And so I'm looking forward to the day where we can gather at the upper house. You know, if you live downtown, you're a student, you love downtown, where we can actually get to meet each other and uh, be together in community and worship God. It's going to be pretty awesome. Really looking forward to that. This is my first time speaking to you all. And so I figure I should tell you a little bit about myself. So uh, originally I'm from Iowa. I studied a fine art in college. After college, I ran off to be a missionary for a little while in South America and Brazil, and then spent uh, 13 years on staff with Crew, a campus ministry here in Madison at UW. And uh, for those 13 years, Madison was home. Black Hawk was home. And, uh, you know, it's like my wife and I, we got, after we got married, when we were living here, we had all three of our kids here. We just loved this place. So it's really great. It's really great to be back in Madison. But for the last five years, we've lived somewhere else. So can I tell you a little bit about where we lived and a little bit about my family? All right, check out, check out this picture. So this is us. Uh, this isn't like a family trip. It's not a family vacation. This was actually just a family trip to church from our apartment. So the last five years, we lived in New York City. And uh, one Sunday morning, we were walking to church and we were crossing the street and we just stopped real fast in the middle of the street as my sister-in-law took a picture and then we kept walking. And this is just an epic shot. So I know, you know, New York can be a little bit polarizing. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Uh, it really is like the best and the worst of humanity all kind of rolled into one. But for us, we loved it. We loved our time in New York City. Uh, but we're back, and we're grateful to be back here. But let me tell you just a little bit about some of the dynamics that take place when you live in New York. You know, New York, it's like this big, beautiful, creative engine where people from all over the world, they come together, and they are uh, wanting to make it. You know, in some ways, it's like New York is this standard. Man, if you can, like... Frank Sinatra said, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. But it's up to you, New York, New York, right? Know the song? Well, um, when you move to New York, I have friends in the music industry. And one of the things that, uh, a story I heard was that, okay, so it's like the first week they're in the, they're in the city, you know, hoping to make it, playing their instrument. They go down onto the subway platform and there's, there's a guy playing his violin on the subway platform, and he's better than my friend. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, where am I? You know, and that sort of reality check, it causes a lot of fear and insecurity, but it also creates sort of a drive, right? The engine kicks in because I've got to make it here, right? It's up to me. And so, I mean, man, you're in New York and there's so much energy because there's so many people like working hard to make it. They're grinding, they're doing all sorts of stuff. They like, you know, they're wanting to build their life on New York, their identity on New York, their New York's validation for them. And so they're like, um, uh, you know, you, you've probably got to get a, uh, an agent. There's, um, 
brokers you're going to have to work with when you're in the city. Uh, you're going to have to market yourself in person, networking online. You're going to have to um, do that too. And then, you know, I have friends and they say they're working 80 hours a week. Mathematically, I don't even really know how that's possible, but they tell me it's true. 80, 90 hours a week. Um, and on top of all of that, you're just dealing with life and the stress of being in New York, of living in a major urban center. And if you've got family, <laughs> or dare I add anything else to this board? I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll save that one. But the pressure, the pressure of trying to build your life, your identity on New York, is validation of you, it is. There's a lot of pressure. And you sort of are wondering, when is it all going to break and come crashing down? But I don't think this only happens in New York. I think whether you are in New York or in New Glarus, we all have things that we build our life on. Right? There's things that we're trying to build our identity on, and we're hoping that they will be strong enough to support the pressures of life. I think a lot of us, maybe we, we build our life on um, approval, affirmation, or like um, prestige that we might get from others. Or maybe it's uh, academic or career success, uh, financial stability, especially in a world that feels really unstable. Maybe it is... Um, in uh, trying to find a fulfilling, fulfilling romantic relationships or building like that ideal family that has it all together or maybe just trying to live your uh, best Instagram life right now. And you think, boy, if I could just do that. The problem is, anytime we build our life on anything Besides God, anything that's sufficient to bear the weight, we feel this kind of pressure. We just feel it. So I wonder, does it make you wonder, like, is there another way? Do I have to live like this, wondering if anything comes up in my life, if, <laughs> if it's all going to crack and come crashing down? Well, this is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about how, what do we build our life and our identity on and how do we avoid this? And we're looking in the book of Galatians for that. So if you're joining us this morning, we are in the middle of our series on the book of Galatians. And so if you're new or you're uh, just new to Blackhawk or just new to the series, um, uh, let me give you a little background on this story in Galatians. So Galatians, it's a book, right, in the Bible, but originally it's a letter that was compiled in this book, and it was from the Apostle Paul. And he wrote this letter to a church that he, and people he loved, a church that he started. The, the people in Galatia, they came to faith through Paul. That's how they heard about Jesus. They started following Jesus there. It was great news. They were loving it. And then Paul moved on, and he went, to, uh, he went on to another place, another city to build, uh, to plant more churches, 
And while he was gone, there were people from sort of the mothership, the headquarters, the main church of Christianity at the time, which was in Jerusalem. And that church was the majority culture of those people were culturally Jewish. That's who Christians were at the time. It wasn't, it was seen as really like a, a Jewish sect. So these folks, they come up to Galatia and they see these Galatian, non-Jewish, Gentile Christians living this Galatian-ish expression of Christianity. And they're like, what are you guys doing? That's not, that's not how it works. If you're going to really follow Jesus, you've got to really be Jewish. Like WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? They were like, well, Jesus would, he would follow the Torah, right? Jesus would, he would follow the Jewish cultural and religious laws. He would do that. So there's going to have to be ceremonial washing and cleansing really for all sorts of things that could happen in your life. Um, We have festivals and holidays and things, uh, Sabbath keeping. There's all sorts of stuff you're going to have to do if you're going to be Jewish. And um, oh yeah. And we have dietary regulations that you have to follow. Like there's no more pork. Uh, Yeah. yeah, Even if you're a pig farmer, we're going to have to give that up because we, it's unclean. You can't do that. And the 10 commandments, remember those? Yeah, those are good. Um, and I know you're trying to follow them. Those are all still in play. Uh, so keep that up. And, um, and uh, oh yeah, men, if you want to be part of our community, our covenant community, you're going to have to have the sign of that community on your body. And you're going to have to get circumcised. Oh, I don't know. Maybe circumcision deserves two And Paul hears that this is going on. And he's like, no, this is not the life you were created in Christ Jesus to live. You're not supposed to live under this kind of pressure. And he's frustrated. He's mad at the people who told him this. He's mad at the Galatians because they bought into it. And he's mad because he doesn't want to see it all come crashing down. It was the kind of pressure they're living under. As they try to build their life on the law, the sort of external identity they've been given from their community. Sociologists say there's really primarily two ways we form identity today. There's sources of it. First is from kind of an external identity that comes from your family, your community, religion, maybe your nation or other things, right? And it sets all your expectations, like what you do, where you live, your occupation, who you marry, all sorts of stuff, external Identities. In traditional cultures, even still today in the world, this is how much of the world works. And there's actually quite a bit of um, stability in those relationships because, you know, there's a lot of mutual support. Your expectations are super clear. So there's some good stuff with it, but it can also be really suffocating for individuals in that community where the community seems to value itself as a group more than the individual in the group. And it can create pressure like this. 
The other place we tend to get our identity is from created identities that we discover internally. This is sort of like the way most of us, you know, in Madison and America in the West kind of do it today, where we're like, you know, it's the follow your heart sort of identity, where we try, we like the idea of being free, free from all this to kind of discover ourselves, to create ourselves. We think of ourselves as art, like a canvas that we're going to paint on. And then we sort of show that canvas to the world and hope the world likes what they see. It's a lot like New York, but the sociologists, they also say that created identities are actually really fragile and they take enormous amounts of validation to sustain. And so when we try to create our own identity, it's like we have to, I don't even think I should do this. We have to, no, maybe not. (laughs) We have to keep working. Right? It's why I think we literally curate identities of ourselves, pictures and words about the, our ideal self, and then we post it to the world on the internet. And we compulsively wait anxiously to see how many likes or reposts and retweets we get about our savvy thoughts on politics, our new haircuts, our new design of our home and furniture, or you know, that incredible vacation we took. Because we're longing for someone to validate, continue to validate this identity we've created. And it creates pressure. And Paul is saying in the letter we're about to read, there is another way. It's not an external identity. It's not an internal created identity, but it is a relational identity that you get, not based on what you do, but based on who you know. It's an identity based in a metaphor he gives on adoption. So let's read this passage in Galatians 4, and let's check out what Paul has to say. So if you have your Bible, you can open up. Otherwise, hey, here it is right here. You can just follow along. Um, It can be helpful, I think, to have a Bible open up. You kind of scan back and forth and see things you might not otherwise see. So, but if you don't, no big deal. Um, Let's read this. Paul says, so also when you were underage, he says immature, we were in slavery to the elementary principle, spiritual forces of the world. This is a weird phrase that probably doesn't make any sense to anyone on first glance. It just sounds religious and spiritual, right? But when the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts who calls Abba, Father. Erase that. Okay, next one. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who are by nature not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved to them all over again? Kind of see how Paul is feeling frustrated. Because he knows the Galatians have fleed from one form of slavery into another. 
And he's like, you are, that's not where we get our identity. You have a new identity that comes from adoption. So what were the Galatians enslaved to besides the law? Well, let's look at this. Um, the elementary spiritual forces. This is in verse 4-3. And also in verse 9, it just gets translated in English as forces. But this comes from a Greek word that's called stoikeion. It's translated in the NIV as elementary spiritual forces. In the ESV, it's the elementary principles of the world. Now, this is a really hard word to translate. It, it has a lot of usage and it means a bunch of different things and it evolved over time. So first thing it meant was really like these were... Um, the ancient Greeks thought the world, there were elements, like primary elements to the universe, like wind, fire, water, soil, you know, earth. And all of life was kind of based on those things. And then as it evolved in the pantheon of gods, they saw all these spiritual deities who the idols they would make were made out of those elementary principles. You know, those primary elements. And those deities had ways you had to live and interact with your community and with them. Otherwise, life wouldn't work. And so it gets used in our passage, sort of like it's the foundational standards or principles of life. It's the things that you feel like we just have to do or life doesn't work. It works when we do them and life falls apart when we don't do them. Uh, example, so if you were a wheat farmer in Galatia, um, there were nine different elemental spiritual forces, goddesses and gods that you had to peace the whole time you were growing your wheat from the time you put the uh, seed into the ground and you, there was one God, you'd, there was, you know, you'd burn a little incense, say a little prayer, do a thing. And then when it popped out of the ground, you had to do another one to another deity. And then when it was, you know, knee high by the 4th of July, like we used to say about the corn in Iowa, you know, there was another God or a deity that you would have to like appease at that point and all the way through. And if you didn't do it, and you thought, I'm, we're going to lose the harvest. And that's my financial stability. That's the health of my family. That's our happiness. They might not get to eat. My community might not get to eat. And there was a lot of pressure. That was just if you're a wheat farmer. That existed in every aspect of life. There were hundreds of deities, elementary spiritual forces. You had to appease all day, every day. Now, I know we're, we're educated people, right? We're Madisonians and we sort of think, that's so superstitious. What are they thinking? But I think if we're honest, we have our own elementary principles of our world that we think our life depends on and success in life depends on. I know there are people right now and you are holding it together in COVID. You know, you're like, some of you have... Uh, lost a job. Some of you are afraid of your business going under so other people can lose their job. And you've sort of built maybe your life on your sense of career or stability or, you know, the approval you get from the people who love you at work. And now you don't know if you can hold it together. And the pressure is real. I know there are um, parents right now who are struggling too. You know, because you are trying to hold it down at work Maybe you're working at home and your kids are studying at home, you know, uh, or you're harder yet. You're working outside the house and you have to come home and you're feeling like, man, I'm failing as a parent and I'm failing at work. I'm not making it anywhere. And there's just pressure. 
you know, we think, yeah, like finances, our job, romance, there's all these things that we've got to build our life on. And we think if we're going to do that, then we'll be happy and everything will work. It's just the way life works. And if we don't do those things in life, it doesn't work. So what are the stoicheon, the elementary principles of the world we live in that you feel in your life? Where do you feel the pressure? Where are you worried that it might collapse and everything's going to break? It's sometimes hard to figure out where we've built our identity. It's hard. One of the ways we can figure that out is we can kind of pay attention to ourselves, right? Kind of our emotional world, what's going on. Um, When I (laughs) am living under the bricks and life is hard and stressful, uh, you can ask my family, I'm not very fun to be around. I sort of like exude, like uh, my, my, my wife calls them kind of like, Pricklies, you know, it's like stay away from me kind of grumpy kind of energy, you know, because I'm working hard. I'm feeling compulsive. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling driven. I'm easily set off. And I'm like, ah, leave me alone. I got to figure this out. I feel like my identity might come crashing down. Today, people are, you know, mindfulness is all the rage, right? And people love it because it's like, whoa, that's really helpful. I can take a minute to be quiet and figure out what's going on in my life. That's, I mean, the science says, hey, that's helpful. But long before mindfulness was a thing, there has been, there are ancient Christian practices of prayer that do something very similar, but take it a step farther because it's not just helps us become aware of ourselves. It helps us also become aware of God who wants to come in and under the pressure of our life. So if you want to grow in this first, maybe just pay attention to what I like to think of as like the warning lights on the dashboard of your soul, right? Those, those bursts of maybe anxiety or anger or fear uh, or whatever it might be, you know, that something, it's like your soul saying, warning, it's going to break down, check engine soon. And one of the ways you can do it, you can go on our website. There is a podcast that my wife and I did for Blackhawk. We did with the Blackhawk podcast. And it's all on this prayer practice called the prayer of examine. Maybe for a week, you just are going to listen to that and do that so you can become aware of figuring out what those warning lights mean when they go off. Maybe you're going to ask your wife or your friend or your spouse or whoever, someone who knows you, like when they see the light going off, you're going to have to be vulnerable to do that. And if you're the person who's going to tell them, try to tell them kindly. We got to become aware of that if we're going to grow in this. So what's the alternative Paul's like, no, it's not from this external stuff. It's not from the internal identities we create. And he says it comes from this relational identity. It comes because of adoption. Paul says we've been adopted into God's family. So let's look at the next passage. This says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is saying we have been adopted by God because Jesus has come into our world to buy us out of the things that enslave us so we could become God's kids, okay? Adoption. Now, you probably, we all probably know people who adoption has changed the life of both parents and kids. It's like today, adoption is a metaphor that, uh, that is powerful for us because we think, boy, it um, utterly changes the life of a kid, 
who gets taken out of one life and adopted into a loving family. And that's powerful for us. But adoption in the ancient world, in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, had layers to it we don't get that I think are, make it even more powerful. So if you were a Galatian and Paul sends you this letter and he says, you've been adopted, that you might receive adoption as sonship, uh, to sonship. He's saying something very specific. At this point, the most famous examples of adoption that were happening in the world were not the adoption of little children and infants, but it was the adoption of adults. You see, up to this point, every emperor from Julius Caesar to the point like five emperors later, when this letter was written, they received the crown of Caesar, not because they were born into it naturally, but because they were born, they were given that identity through adoption. And if you lived in the Roman empire and you heard like, whoa, Julius Caesar adopted Augustus. Wow. I mean, that guy, he gets to be king. He's now, he is the king of the ruler of the empire and all the empire would look up to him and they would be like, look at that. That's amazing. Look at that guy. He's got to be incredible. And so if you got this letter that said, you've been adopted, the Galatians would be like, what? Paul's saying, you're not just adopted by the king of the empire, you've been adopted by the ruler of the universe. And all of creation sees what's happened. And the angels are probably like, what? That is incredible. That guy, that girl, they get to be a, the heir of the whole kingdom. They get to be God's kid. And they get all of the good stuff that comes with it. Because they get to become an heir. Now, when I read that passage this week or with my daughter, she was like, uh, dad, it says adopted as a son, but sons and daughters, right? And I was like, well, yeah, that means that for us. But in this time, it meant something specific because in their culture, it really was only oldest sons who got to inherit the kingdom. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, you're all counted like oldest sons. You all get the highest status. So check out this verse. Paul wrote just a little bit before. He says, there is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You're heirs according to that promise. Paul is saying, like, if there is an org chart in the family of God, it is God, and then it's no tiered pyramid scheme. It's God. And then it's like a flat line, right? You all get the highest position available in the family because you've been adopted. So if you're somebody who feels like I don't feel that, and maybe you, you don't feel very prestigious or affirmed or important and people don't pay attention to you. Maybe they don't even notice you. They don't even treat you like a human. This status, it sort of lifts you up and says, you are the child of the king. Or if you're someone who's struggled with pride and kind of looks down and thinks, yeah, I'm something. This kind of identity, it humbles us and it creates a really powerful community in the family of God. See, we come to God as individuals, but we necessarily come together as a family. But we're not sort of absorbed and assimilated into like this unity. God actually sees us 
He sees us who we are and he affirms us. You know, um, it's sort of like, uh, like uh, you, you really are art. You matter. It's like uh, we get freedom in Christ too. So um, here, throw up the next one. Next slide. It says, Jesus was born of a woman. He was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Jesus did that, but then he takes us and he makes us his kids. And when that happens, uh, the scripture says in uh, Ephesians says, you are Christ, you are God's workmanship. The word in Greek is poema. It means, what's where we get the word poem. You are like God's literary masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that you would walk in them. See, God sees you. The whole argument of Galatians is not assimilation. He's like, no, you get to bring your culture. You get to bring your ethnicity. You get to bring your history, your story, your your gifts, your talents, your baggage and your brokenness. And God will redeem that and affirm you who you are in Christ. You are like art, but you're like his art. So we get the stability of the community, but we also get the freedom and the discovery to step into the life he's created for us. That's what happens when we get adopted. We get the highest position and we get the highest affirmation because Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law. It's sort of like his life. He's the only one who lived perfectly here. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we come into Jesus and the affirmation that God spoke over his perfect life, God gets to speak over our life. And you know what that was? The father looked at Jesus and he said, this is my son. I love him. With him, I am well pleased. Affirmation, the highest affirmation. Some of us, have never really experienced that kind of affirmation from a parent. And it's really hard to walk into relationships with people in a healthy way or a relationship with work in a healthy way if we've never received that kind of affirmation. But in Jesus, God can look at you, at your life, and he would say, that's my boy. I'm so pleased with him. That's my girl. I love her. And the highest affirmation from the greatest person in all of creation looks at you and he affirms what he sees. That kind of affirmation, it sort of lifts us up. It buoys us up. It supports us. And then even when we think about other things in our life, it's like we, Jesus gets that identity, gets to come under us and support the pressure we feel in our life when we, don't break. When Jesus is our deepest foundation. We get the highest position when we are adopted. We get the highest affirmation. And our heart's cry changes. You know, when I think about New York, I think, boy, sometimes it just felt like there was 8.9 million people whose hearts were screaming, I matter. See me, value me. And in Christ, Paul says, our hearts cry changes. And it says, we get a new cry and it's the Abba cry. 
Abba. The spirit of God comes into our hearts. God makes, we, we, we're not making other things into our lives. Gods are idols to bear weight they can't sustain, but God makes us his kid and then he makes his home in us. And the spirit of Jesus is in us. And when Jesus' earthly life, when he prayed, he called God father like every probably good Jewish boy did, but he did something unique in history. He called God Abba, which probably felt really pretentious and a little shocking and intimate, but Jesus is like, no, he's my Abba. He's my father. And our heart's cry gets to change and we get to call God Abba. When we lived in New York, uh, one of my favorite things was at the end of the, like the school day, we'd go pick up our kids from school. Looks a lot like school pickup here, except you don't pull up in a car. You walk up and everybody goes to the subway and you know, come into the, into the school. And we were in this really cool, like, a uh, heroic Title I school right in the middle of Manhattan and um, with this crazy diverse population and educators that were just doing an incredible job. And we would come and we'd pick up my, pick up my kids at the end of the day. And um, I would, you know, you know how that goes. There's like little like first graders with their oversized backpacks and they're cute as all get out. And they see their parent and they're like, <gasps> you know, and they kind of go running and bounding to their parent. Well, I love when our our friends, our Jewish friends, when their kids would see them because their faces would light up and with those oversized backpacks, they would leap up and bound and say like, Abba, 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 Abba. And their Abba would, he would scoop them up. And he was so excited to see them. You guys, if we're in Jesus, we're in him, our our heart can change its cry from accept me to Abba. And we can know he just wants to scoop us up into his arms. There's really no greater privilege than that. Now, if we're going to be people who really experience that, that identity is the firm foundation of our life. And that will free us up because then we can just go at it, right? It's like we can run at an exam or at work or at parenting and we're free to crush it because all the validation's ours already. And we're also free to blow it because we have already have the highest affirmation. We're just free to live our life and follow Jesus. But to do that, I think we're gonna have to um, kind of soak in that identity, we're going to have to like let it kind of fill up our lives. Because really the messaging all throughout your day is a message that says you've got to perform for your identity. You've got to belong to make this identity and the pressure is there, right? It's sort of like we got like a sponge. We've got to soak up our identity in Christ every day because the world is just going to want to squeeze it out. Maybe you're going to have to soak it up again in the middle of your day, right? And one of the ways we can do that is just to reflect on scripture and let this identity fill us. So for thousands of years, Christians have read scripture in a slow meditative way, not just to learn stuff here, but to kind of let it sink into our hearts. And what would happen this week if you took the passage we just looked at and you, um, you let that soak into your soul? Maybe you just got five minutes as a parent or less because it's crazy. It's okay. It doesn't have to be perfect, but just get some time to soak in it. Or if you got more time, we'll take more time. But I thought we could end today just by reading this passage. I'm going to change the pronouns just a little bit. And we're going to kind of soak in this together. And then we're going to 
I'll close it up and we're going to go into worship. And may, hopefully you will feel this identity sort of rise up and support all the pressures you feel in life. Like the bricks will come off and you will feel Jesus holding you in this secure identity. So let me read this. As I do, um, first, if, you, if you're in a place where you could close your eyes, not if you're driving or on an elliptical, don't do that. But if you're at home right now, close your eyes and take a deep breath and sit back and kind of imagine your Abba looking at you with open arms. He's ready for you to come running to scoop you up and imagine his anticipation to meet with you, not reluctance, not shaming you for what has happened in the past, but just wanting you to come. And then hear these words. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem me from under the law. You're not under the law. In Christ, you are forgiven. There is only one person who by nature is a son of God, but you You have been adopted to be a son of God because you are in Jesus. You're not under the law. That I might receive adoption to sonship. And because I am his son, his daughter, they just sit with that. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. He loves me. God sent the spirit of his son into my heart, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. God is not far from you. He's not withdrawn from you, but he will make his home in you if you will say yes to Jesus. And your heart, your heart can change its cry to Abba. And maybe as you sit, maybe um, just in your heart and your head, or maybe out loud you could say, Abba, Abba. And imagine him just smiling at you and delighting you and scooping you up. So I am no longer a slave, but God's child. Think of the places where the pressure, the bricks are on and it's heavy and imagine them, Jesus coming underneath it and removing them. I am no longer a slave. And since I am his child, God has made me also an heir. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness. You are an heir of the king of the universe. Mm, Sound good? Sound good? You guys, that's who we are. 
So let's be people who soak in that, who fill up with that. You know, Frank Sinatra, man, that guy was full of it. He didn't know what he was talking about. It's not up to you. It's up to Jesus. You don't have to make it there. You've already made it with your Abba. So now you're free. We're free. We don't have to be slaves to any of those things. And we can just run to him and run through life with him free. It's not about us. All our hope is in Jesus. All our hope is in Jesus. Amen? Amen.